You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 387 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As we mentioned on social media this past week, starting with this episode, we're going to take a few or several weeks and skip around and look at some different events that took place in the summer of 1863 before we dive into Chickamauga, which we anticipate spending quite some time on. Not a Gettysburg amount of time, mind you, but still, we'll be covering Chickamauga for a while. So anyway, with this show, we're going to look at the story of CSS CSS Atlanta, a Confederate ironclad. Then, with the next show, we'll pop out to the Indian Territory for the Battle of Honey Springs. And after that, we'll head down to Texas and talk about the Thermopylae of the West, the Battle of Sabine Pass. And then we'll also be using a few upcoming members episodes to talk about something else that happened in the summer of 1863. Confederate Cavalry Commander John Hunt Morgan's famous raid up into Indiana and Ohio. Exactly. Okay, well, we just wanted to share those programming notes with you in case you were tuning in and wondering why we aren't diving straight into Chickamauga after Tullahoma. So, there you go. But now, let's talk about CSS Atlanta. On the morning of Wednesday, June 17, 1863, aboard USS Nahant, 16-year-old cabin boy Alva Hunter had just awakened, dressed quickly, and stowed his hammock, trying not to disturb his still-sleeping shipmates. When everyone's slumber ended abruptly with the muffled shouts and the thumping of running feet on the deck above. Hunter caught sight of the ship's quartermaster scooting rapidly down the ladder from above. The man shouted, She's coming right down upon us! Hunter, overcome with curiosity, raced up the ladder, and once on deck, quickly spotted what was causing all the commotion. A Confederate ironclad bearing down on Nahant and her sister vessel, USS Weehawken. Hunter later remembered how, quote, 
she approached with the bone in her teeth, end quote, which is naval slang for the bow wave turned up by a fast-moving ship. The rebel ironclad fired a shot from her bow gun, which passed over Weehawken and landed close to Nahant. Hunter recalled, quote, I could see that cannon shot as plainly as the catcher sees the balls which a pitcher throws to him, end quote. In fact, the geyser of water thrown up when the enemy shell crashed into the water nearby actually soaked Hunter from head to toe. The Federals had been expecting trouble, and both monitors had been ordered to keep a full head of steam up, so it didn't take Weehawken long to slip her anchor chains and quickly get underway. Unlike Weehawken, Nahant didn't have an experienced pilot on board to navigate the shallow waters, so she followed in Weehawken's wake. As Hunter turned to head below deck, an officer grabbed his arm, saying, You're all wet. Where have you been? Have you been overboard? Well, fortunately for Hunter, the pressing need to get the monitor ready for action diverted the officer's attention, and he quickly lost interest in the wet cabin boy's condition. Be that as it may, Alva Hunter counted the man's scolding a small price to pay, for the chance to see a real Confederate ironclad in action. That ironclad was CSS Atlanta, and she was coming out to break the Union Navy's blockade of Savannah, Georgia. CSS Atlanta actually started out life as a steamship. She was converted from a British-built blockade runner named Fingal. Designed and built as a merchantman in Glasgow, Scotland, Fingal was completed in early 1861. The ship briefly operated between Glasgow and other ports in Scotland before she was purchased in September 1861 by James Bullock, an officer in the Confederate Navy and the primary representative in Great Britain for Stephen Mallory, the Confederacy's Secretary of the Navy. Acting with Edward Clifford, another Confederate agent in Britain, Bullock not only acquired Fingal, but the two men arranged for the ship to run the blockade and deliver military and naval ordnance and supplies that they had purchased. Bullock hired an English captain and crew, then arranged for the cargo to be loaded at Greenock, Scotland, in early October 1861. To disguise his intention to run the blockade with her, Bullock listed Fingal's destination as, first, Bermuda, and then Nassau in the Bahamas. Bullock himself boarded Fingal when she put in at a port in Wales. Fingal reached Bermuda on November 2nd and departed on the 7th. After leaving Bermuda, Bullock informed the crew informed the crew of the steamer that he intended to run the Union blockade and take the ship into Savannah, Georgia. He offered to first take anyone who objected to the risky undertaking to Nassau. However, all of the crew agreed to stay on. While in Bermuda, Bullock had met with Lieutenant Robert Pegram, the captain of the commerce raider CSS Nashville, and he secured the services of that ship's pilot for the run into Savannah. 
On November 11th, as Fingal approached the Georgia coast, the weather seemed to be on her side. Bullock wrote, quote, We ran straight into as nice a fog as any reasonable blockade runner could have wanted. We could not have been in a better position for a dash at daylight. Fingal used the fog to good advantage and slipped past the Union blockaders undetected. She reached Savannah on November 12th. Fingal was the first ship owned by the Confederate government to successfully run the blockade, and her cargo was a godsend for the rebel war effort. In her hold were 14,000 Enfield muskets, 1 million cartridges, 2 million percussion caps, 10 large rifled cannon, thousands of sabers, bayonets, and revolvers, 400 barrels of gunpowder, assorted medical supplies, and a vast amount of clothing material for uniforms. Bullock later noted that, quote, No single ship ever took into the Confederacy a cargo so entirely composed of military supplies. While Fingal was discharging her cargo, Bullock went to Richmond to confer with Stephen Mallory. Bullock had a plan to load Fingal to the gills with cotton, which would be sold in Europe. The profits would be used to purchase more ships and war material for the Confederate government. Mallory gave his approval, and Bullock returned to Savannah on November 23rd. It took Bullock almost a month to get Fingal ready to sail, fully loaded with a cargo of cotton. But when the ship set out to break through the blockade on December 23rd, he realized it would be impossible to do, since the Union now had every channel, every exit from Savannah to the sea, locked up tight. Bullock reported to Stephen Mallory in late January 1862 that breaking out was hopeless, so Mallory ordered him to turn the ship over to another officer and for Bullock to return to Europe some other way. It's not clear who had the idea to convert Fingal to an ironclad, but ultimately it was Mallory who approved the project, and he gave the contract for the conversion to the brothers Asa and Nelson Tift. Earlier, despite the fact they had no previous shipbuilding experience, Mallory had also given the Tift brothers the contract to construct another ironclad, CSS Mississippi, to defend New Orleans. The brothers were given the job based solely on the fact that Asa Tift and Stephen Mallory had known each other in Key West, Florida, before Mallory became a U.S. Senator and then the Confederate Secretary of the Navy. In any case, the brothers never had a chance to finish CSS Mississippi since she was still not completed when New Orleans fell to the Federals in April 1862. As far as the conversion of Fingal into an ironclad was concerned, Mallory gave the Tift brothers unlimited authority in their new venture. 66-year-old flag officer Josiah Tatnell, a native Georgian and commander of all rebel naval forces in his home state, was thoroughly dismayed to learn that he was to have no part in the project. In a report to Richmond, he told Mallory, quote, 
Mr. Tift, who was in charge of construction, called at my office and showed me his authority, and in reply to a question, he stated that he intended that I should have nothing to do with it. I, of course, abstained from interfering in any shape whatsoever. While Tatnall may have been cut out of the picture, the ladies of Savannah and other Georgia communities were only too happy to jump in and help. To help finance the cost of converting Fingal into an ironclad, Savannah's well-to-do white women held lawn parties to collect donations. They raffled off china, silverware, and family heirlooms. Ladies' gunboat associations sprang up statewide, sponsoring charity concerts and raising funds by selling so-called gunboat quilts. Spirited rivalries developed between the gunboat associations. For example, the Sandersonville Central Georgian newspaper asked its readers, The ladies of Savannah have already raised over $3,600. What will the ladies of Washington County do? Using their plans for CSS Mississippi as a guide, the Tift brothers completed, completed the conversion in July 1863. Rechristened CSS Atlanta, they declared the ironclad ready for trials. Atlanta was 204 feet long and 40 feet, 41 feet in the beam, or its overall width. Her armored casemate, built atop Fingal's hull, sloped at a 30-degree angle. The casemate was constructed of 3 inches of oak and 15 inches of pine, over which were two layers of railroad iron that had been reworked into plates two inches thick by seven inches wide. The new ironclad was armed with two seven-inch brick rifled guns positioned to fire from the bow and the stern, while the broadside guns were two 6.4-inch brick rifles. Attached to Atlanta's bow was a spar torpedo. It consisted of a copper-encased explosive charge at the end of a wooden pole with a line that ran back inside the hull. A system of pulleys allowed the torpedo to be lowered and then driven into the side of an enemy vessel below the waterline. A crew member would pull the line upon impact, detonating the charge against the enemy vessel's hull. Atlanta's excellent British-built engines, constructed in 1860, meant she had the best power plant of any Confederate ironclad. But still, speed had been sacrificed for armor, and due to the added weight, her top speed would only be seven knots, or about eight miles per hour. While her engines were top-notch, and while she looked like most other Confederate casemate ironclads, Atlanta had several flaws that were cause for worry. First of all, her draft, the portion below the waterline, was a major concern. With a load of coal on board, she would draw 15 to 17 feet, meaning navigation in shallow waters would be tricky. Atlanta's crew would also be subject to terrible conditions since there was no air ventilation into the hull, resulting in extreme heat and foul air, especially in the engine room. And then, on top of everything, she leaked badly. One of her officers said, quote, It was almost intolerable aboard the Atlanta, there being no method of ventilation, and the heat was intense. What a comfortless, infernal, and godforsaken ship.
I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. CSS Atlanta was commissioned, or officially placed in active service, in November 1862 and named the flagship of Tatnall's Savannah Squadron. Josiah Tatnall's name may ring a bell with longtime podcast listeners since he was the last commander of another Confederate ironclad, CSS Virginia. Tatnall took command of Virginia after her famous duel with USS Monitor in Hampton Roads. As you guys may recall, he was forced to burn Virginia in May 1862 to prevent her from falling into federal hands. He was criticized for this action, but a court-martial, convened at his insistence, exonerated him. Tatnall wanted to take Atlanta out and engage the federal warships blockading Savannah before any enemy ironclads appeared on the scene. He anticipated Atlanta would wreak havoc on the Yankee blockaders, just as CSS Virginia had done in Hampton Roads, before USS Monitor showed up to save the day there for the Federals. Tatnall wanted to engage with the enemy blockaders before any Yankee ironclads showed up because, based on his experience with Virginia and with his knowledge of Atlanta's weaknesses, he had little confidence he'd be able to do much of anything after the Federals upped the ante at Savannah by stationing ironclads there. Tatnall reported to Richmond, quote, I consider the Atlanta no match for the monitor class of vessel at close quarters, and in shoal waters particularly. In January 1863, Tatnall's first attempt to take Atlanta out and engage the enemy was foiled by Savannah's own defenses. You see, the rebels had placed obstructions in the Savannah River to block the channel and prevent the Federals from approaching the city. And despite Tatnall having tried to coordinate his plan with the Confederate Army engineers, who would need to clear the obstacles, it would take another month for them to be removed. Meanwhile, the impatient citizens and businessmen of Savannah fumed. They were anxious for Atlanta to break the blockade. 
Midshipman Dabney Scales recorded in his diary, quote, We will be branded as cowards by the unthinking portion of the citizens of Savannah. These people never stop to inquire into the cause of these delays, but stigmatize the Navy generally, because we did not go down and sink the enemy fleet even before the obstructions had been removed from the river. On February 3rd, even though the obstructions had not been completely cleared, Tatnall wanted to take advantage of the high tide to take Atlanta downriver and then out into Wasaw Sound to engage the blockaders. But gale-force winds, combined with her slow speed and difficult steering, prevented Atlanta from passing through the obstacles. Finally, on March 19th, Tatnall succeeded in taking Atlanta downriver. His plan was to steam out into Wasaw Sound, break the blockade of Savannah, then steam up the coast to Port Royal, South Carolina, and attack the important federal naval base there. However, Tatnall decided to scrap all of that when he learned that the Federals had been alerted to his plans by deserters, and that three monitors were at Port Royal. Tatnell called off his sortie, which further displeased the citizens of Savannah, who by this time were clamoring for action. Bowing to that public pressure and to his own dissatisfaction with Tatnell's perceived lack of aggressiveness, Stephen Mallory replaced him later that month with Captain Richard Page. The 55-year-old Page was a good friend of Tatnall's, but he, in his turn, was only in command at Savannah for about a month before being relieved in May and replaced by Commander William Webb. You see, in Richmond, Stephen Mallory had decided he wanted younger, more aggressive officers to command the Confederacy's ironclads, and the 38-year-old Webb seemed to fit the bill. Webb knew he had been placed in command at Savannah, especially to take aggressive action with Atlanta sooner rather than later, and accordingly, he attempted to sortie on the first spring high tide after his arrival. He set out on May 30th, but to avoid Union-held Fort Pulaski, Webb had to take a roundabout route down the Savannah and Wilmington Rivers, and before reaching Wasaw Sound, Atlanta ran aground. She wasn't damaged, but by the time she was pulled free, the chance to use the high tide to head out and engage the Yankees had passed. Atlanta's deep draft was proving to be quite a problem, since it meant the Confederates had to wait for high tides to attempt to take her out, and so Webb had to wait for the June tide to make another try. By that time, though, on the Federal side, two monitors, USS Weehawken and USS Nahant, along with the wooden gunboat USS Cimarron, were in Wasaw Sound, near the mouth of the Wilmington River. While Webb was waiting for the June tide, he received orders from Richmond. Mallory wanted him to wait to take Atlanta out until another ironclad, CSS Savannah, was completed. Savannah was a Richmond-class casemate ironclad being built there in her namesake city. 
Like Atlanta, she would be armed with four Brooke rifles. Her constructor, H.F. Willink, would turn Savannah over to the Confederate Navy shortly, on June 30, 1863, so there was really nothing wrong with Mallory's plan to have Webb wait until both rebel ironclads could take on the Federals. But nevertheless, Webb disobeyed Mallory's orders to wait for Savannah, and he took Atlanta out by herself on the next tide. In the early evening of June 15th, Webb started Atlanta down the Wilmington River and then spent the rest of the night taking on a full load of coal. He steamed farther downriver the following night to a position about five or six miles away from the two federal monitors guarding the entrance to Wasaw Sound. Webb planned to attack the two monitors early the next morning. Both Weehawken and Nahant belonged to the newest line of monitors, the Passaic class. With the same cheese box on a raft design as their predecessor, USS Monitor, including the armored revolving turret, both Weehawken and Nahant possessed an impressive armament of one 11-inch and one 15-inch Dahlgren gun. The 15-incher was especially formidable, able to throw a 352-pound shell that would simply pound an adversary to pieces at close range. At half past three on the morning of Wednesday, June 17th, Atlanta got underway to make the final run down upon the enemy. Webb hoped to surprise the Yankees, but at 10 minutes after four, a lookout on Weehawken spotted the rebel ironclads approach. When Atlanta, steaming at full speed, closed to within one and a half miles of the two monitors, she fired around from her bow gun that passed over Weehawken and landed close to Nahant. That was the shell that soaked Alva Hunter, the 16-year-old cabin boy on Nahant that we talked about at the top of the episode. As the monitors slipped their anchor chains and got underway, Atlanta came to a sudden and jarring stop. With her bunkers full of coal, the rebel ironclad was sitting deeper in the water, and she ran aground on a sandbar. She was briefly able to free herself, but the pressure of the tide forced her back onto the sandbar. Of this unfortunate occurrence, in his report, Webb would say, quote, I immediately ordered the engines to be backed, but it was fully 15 minutes before she was in motion. As soon as the ship was well afloat, I ordered the engines to go ahead, with the hope of turning her more into the channel, but she could not obey her helm, from the fact of the flood tide being on her starboard bow, and her bottom so near the ground. She was consequently forced upon the bank again. Aboard Weehawken, Captain John Rogers, who was in overall command of the two monitors, realized that Atlanta was in trouble, and he ordered Weehawken to close to within 200 to 300 yards of the stranded rebel ironclad. Waiting until she closed to that almost point-blank distance, Weehawken then opened fire. The shell from the 11-inch Dahlgren missed, passing over Atlanta, but the shell from the 15-inch gun slammed into the Rebel Ironclad's casemate just above one of the port-side gun ports. 
The massive shell breached Atlanta's armor and shattered the oak and pine backing. Webb reported that that shell hit, quote, nearly abreast the pilot house, driving the armor through, tearing away the woodwork inside three feet wide, causing the solid shot in the racks and everything movable in the vicinity to be hurled across the deck with such force as to knock down, wound, and disable the entire gun's crew of the port broadside gun in charge of Lieutenant Thurston, and also half of the crew of Lieutenant Barbo's bow gun, some 30 men being injured more or less. The next shot from Weehawken's 11-inch Dahlgren struck Atlanta, but failed to penetrate the rebel ship's armor plating. When the 15-incher fired again, it again scored a hit, this time breaking a starboard gun shutter as it was being opened and wounding half of the gun's crew as metal fragments sprayed inside Atlanta. What turned out to be the final shot of the battle came from Weehawken's 15-inch Dahlgren. It struck Atlanta's pilot house on top of the casemate, wounding both pilots in it. By this time, Atlanta had been able to fire only seven shots, none of which hit either monitor. Webb considered his options, of which he didn't have many. With Weehawken on one side and Nahant maneuvering to position herself on the other, Atlanta, stuck fast on the sandbar, was a sitting duck. The two monitors would be able to pound the stranded rebel ironclad to pieces. Webb realized he had no choice but to surrender. From the first shot of the battle until Webb surrendered Atlanta, only 15 minutes had passed. Of the rebel ironclad's complement of 145 men, one man was killed and 16 wounded. There were no federal casualties. After the turn of the tide, Atlanta was easily pulled free of the sandbar by the Federals, and they sailed her to Port Royal under her own power. There, temporary repairs were made to the battle damage, and the U.S. government purchased her. The $350,000 in prize money was shared between the crews of Weehawken, Nahant, and Cimarron. Atlanta was sailed to the Washington Navy Yard where further repairs were made, and she was rearmed with a pair of 8-inch Parrot rifles in the bow and stern and 6.4-inch Parrot rifles amidships. FYI, but all four of Atlanta's original Brook rifles are currently located in Willard Park in the Washington Navy Yard. The ironclad retained her name, becoming USS Atlanta, and was commissioned again on February 2, 1864. She was assigned to the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron and spent most of her time stationed up the James River in Virginia, where she could support operations against Richmond and defend against sorties by the rebel ironclads defending the Confederate capital. On May 21, 1864, Atlanta fired her first and only shots in anger on behalf of her new owners when, along with the gunboat USS Dawn, she fired on and dispersed a force of rebel cavalry that was attacking Fort Powhatan 
on the south bank of the James River and its garrison of U.S. colored troops. After the end of the war, Atlanta was decommissioned in Philadelphia in June 1865. But interestingly, her story doesn't end there. Right. You see, in Haiti in 1867, General Sylvain Silnave overthrew the existing government and installed himself in the capital of Port-au-Prince as president for life. However, a revolution against Silnave's rule arose soon after he took power, and, apparently thinking it would be a good idea to have an ironclad on his side of the ensuing civil war, Silnave's government purchased Atlanta for $260,000. Atlanta, now renamed Triumph by her new Haitian owners, departed Philadelphia in December 1869, but vanished en route to Port-au-Prince, probably sinking with the loss of all hands somewhere between the Delaware Capes and Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Confederate Ironclad, 1861 to 1865 by Angus Constam. This is a slim volume by Osprey Publishing. Uh, Some of you are probably familiar with their books. So it's nothing really in-depth. It's just a good overview of the subject with some nice illustrations. Anyway, don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the podcast's Facebook page, Twitter feed, and Instagram account if you'd like to follow the show on social media. And of course, at the website, you can find info about becoming a member of the Strawfoot Brigade and supporting the podcast in that way, just like our newest members, Robert Y., Jennifer K., Gerald B., Bruce K., and Joseph S. You can also make a one-time donation through the website, just like Alfio and Chad did this past week. Thanks, one and all. And thanks also to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.